This is the woman behind the business, featuring honest dialogue that advances and inspires women entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Angel Livis. This week on The Woman Behind the Business, providing services that make a difference. You know me, I'm your host, Angel Livas, and today's guests have created solutions to problems that plague the African-American community. A solution-based company is the best type of business to establish. As a clear-cut target audience, and the company already knows how to attract its potential buyers. Why? Because their goal is to make their customers' lives easier. For Black women, what would appear to be a simple solution to save us time and the hassle of early morning blues revolves around an easier way to manage our natural hair. Don Myers is the founder and CEO of The Most, a beauty business that has identified the biggest pain points in styling natural and textured hair, which I think we all can agree pertains to the time commitment associated with styling natural hair. So her company designs tools and appliances to provide women quick and healthy style options. In addition, she serves as the director of Black Girl Ventures, where she is committed to creating quality programming, where she teaches and mentors and connects with some of the country's best and brightest emerging founders by providing tools and social capital to ultimately build wealth. Welcome to the show, Dawn. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Now... Don, you've had quite a journey um, post-studying law and graduating from Dartmouth uh, Business Bridge Program. What was your initial plan um, post-graduating from college? Because you've done a lot. Yeah, I have. Um, You know, when I was in college, I was very, um, just very active in the kind of social and advocacy space. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that my career was going to be more along the lines of kind of fighting the power. Maybe I'd go work (laughs) in like an NGO. I I wasn't quite sure, but it was going to be along those lines. And quite frankly, when I went to law school, that was the plan, right? We were going to come out, maybe work on the Hill, advocate for people of color. Um, And advocacy is just kind of, I think, the common thread throughout my career. Mm -hmm. At this point, I've worked, you know, on the Hill, on campaigns, in politics, in law firms, in real estate. But the common thread throughout all of that has been about um, advocating for my people, right? Even Mm -hmm. in real estate, right? I was renovating renovating homes south of the river in my old neighborhood, um, you know, trying to make sure that people could live in really nice places at an affordable price point. Right. Um, And now in entrepreneurship, I'm doing the same. And it's awesome because I get to advocate for Black women in particular. And it's just been a blast seeing the um, the response. Now, one thing that you didn't talk about, and I don't know how advocacy fits into this, but your time as a cheerleader for the Boston Celtics. <laughs> yes. Talk to us a little bit about like how that kind of fit into your plan. Was that like a lifelong dream or was it just kind of like happenstance? It totally just happened. So I, growing up, was in gymnastics and acro and competitive cheer. And in those circles, it is a bit of a taboo to actually cheer for a team, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's cool to compete, but you don't necessarily want to be on the sidelines. And so I never saw that happening. Um, But I just happened to come across some folks who, um, you know, were looking, they were just putting the team together and they asked me to join. Um, And so I didn't plan for it. Um, And honestly, the issues that were most prevalent while I was cheering for Celtics weren't so much the time issues. It was the confidence issues, right? Mm. It was um, being able to rock my natural hair and not feel like I was being judged for it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, at the time, I was working two jobs while double majoring in school, still doing kind of extracurricular activities, black student union, mock trial, traveling and competing with mock trial. So it was a really intense time. Um, And to the extent that time wasn't an an issue, you know, that three hours, four hours that I needed to kind of do my hair was just kind of impossible. So um, all of those things, you know, over the years with Celtics, with Um, you know, working in law firms, working on campaigns, working these 16-hour, you know, 18-hour days. Um, Over the course of all that experience, I just got exhausted, right? Mm, Like mm. having to spend all this time on my hair or the alternative that we don't talk about a lot. um, You know, sometimes I would go for a week. Sometimes I'll go for two weeks without washing my hair. (laughs) It's the reality. It's the The reality. reality. And so many of us do it and we don't even think about it 
anymore. But nobody else has to do that, you know? Um, And I just, I strongly believe that black women in particular shouldn't have to sacrifice just because, you know, we have a different texture of hair. All right. So based on what you're saying, are you saying that while you were in college, you were a cheerleader? Yes. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I did it my junior and senior year, sophomore, junior, senior year of college. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was an intense time. I had a lot I'm going sure. on. <laughs> and you had to travel with the team and all we of actually, that. Actually, we didn't travel with the team. That was my saving grace. We only did home games. Okay. Well, that, that helped. Then. Yeah, it definitely did. <laughs> <laughs> now, what would you say was your draw to the real estate industry? Mm. So I kind of grew up in real estate. My my dad, so my parents are both uh, D.C. police officers. Mm-hmm. And back in the 80s and 90s, there was a push to kind of clean up certain areas of D.C. Mm-hmm. And what they would do um, is that they offered this kind of discounted kind of mortgage program mm-hmm. uh, for D.C. police. And the thought was if we can get D.C. police into these neighborhoods and have kind of a constant police presence, um, perhaps some of the wayward activities one. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad, who is an incredible entrepreneurial mind, um, he graduated from D.C. public schools. Quite frankly, my dad, um, you know, academics wasn't his thing. Um, Reading was really difficult for him, but he just had this mind for entrepreneurship and just got it, right? Mm -hmm. So he saw this opportunity and really seized upon it. Um, And he started buying up these these houses and he would fix them up by hand, one by one, put them back on the market. Eventually he started buying these these apartment buildings and renting them out to people in his community that he saw, you know, struggling to, you know, come back into society after maybe a stint in jail or, Mm -hmm. you know, struggling with job loss or whatever the issue was. Um, And I just kind of watched him build this business into a little mini empire. And it was almost one of these things where um, I grew up kind of going to these houses and cleaning up these renovation sites with him. And I grew up like collecting rent checks with him. And Mm so it was completely normal to me when I, you know, graduated from law school, got a real job. You know, it was completely normal to me to start thinking about doing the same thing. So that's what I did. And that's so funny because that's kind of like what my background was like. Mm -hmm. Like my dad has a real estate company. And so going in, helping clean out the houses. Unfortunately, sometimes putting people out or, you know, getting the houses back into a condition where you can rent it out again. Right. So how do you think that has impacted how you deal with community, how you want to advocate for a community and just how do you um, are a humanitarian at heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when I was younger, when I thought about advocacy, I thought about it in very, what's the word, abstract terms. When mm-hmm. I was on the Hill, advocacy was very abstract. I mean, as we know, we can advocate for legislation all day, but, you know, bureaucracy is a big let's say, obstacle to actually getting things done. Mm -hmm. Um, And this pivot into entrepreneurship really taught me the value of real world advocacy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Doing things that have a real world impact that you can see at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, kind of growing up in D.C., you know, we started out in Southeast, right? And, you know, my neighborhoods were never the most pristine or the most well-landscaped or just like, they were kind of dysfunctional, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, as I grew up, I saw that there were these small changes that we could make to those communities so that those kids could see, you know, that they're deserving of, you know, a beautiful kind of scene to wake up in. Mm-hmm. You know, they're deserving of um, an environment that's well put together and well curated. Um, And, you know, I saw the difference that it made just on my block, right? I started cleaning up, you know, one property. The neighbors started doing the same thing. Somebody else saw that, you know, what the potential of that neighborhood Mm -hmm. was. And they came in and bought a place. And, you know, one by one, slowly, our neighborhood started to look like a real neighborhood. Like the compound effect. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, The little kids would come over to my house and ask me what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And, you know, how, how did you know how to do this and all that, all that, all, all those kinds of things, and they they make a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, same thing in entrepreneurship. Now, you know, I am really dedicated to um, seeing real world effects. There are a lot of people, as you know, in the entrepreneurial 
community who talk about supporting underrepresented founders and who talk about representing or uh, supporting black women entrepreneurs. But there are very few people who are actually doing it and mm-hmm. actually kind of putting their time and effort and money behind those initiatives. And so, you know, for me, uh, even though, you know, I'm not a billionaire. Um, not yet. Not it's yet. Okay. Not yet. That's We're right. going to claim it. That's right. We're going to claim it. You're yes. right. But, you know, um, I've always heard people say, you know, when I get that exit, when I get my first 20 mil, then I'll start that foundation. Then I'll do the things. And for me, it's about activating right now. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what we do in Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. We activate, we make the things happen. And so um, that's what my work at Black Girl Ventures is about. It's very unconventional for someone at my stage to be doing what I'm doing in these communities. But we can't wait until we have our first exit before we start to work on the issue we got to work on the issue now and creating that impact that's right now that's right no i totally agree now we are speaking with don myers the founder and ceo of the most a beauty business that creates products and tools that address the pain points for women who rock their natural hair (laughs) now how do you look at your current business as a route to advocate for black women yes Such a good question. Um, Black women spend a ton of money in this market, and there are- How much money? We spend, we have a trillion dollars, half a trillion dollars in uh, in, in, in spending power. Uh, the total black community has right now estimated about a trillion dollars in spending power. Um, black women spend just on liquid products alone. This does not count weaves, wigs, services, just on hair. We're spending about $3 billion just on liquid products um, for our hair. Um, and yet we still don't have um, tools that are kind of tailored to our needs. Um, and that's a huge problem for me. Nielsen calls Black women and Hispanic women the foundation of the beauty uh, industry. industry. Mm-hmm. And still, nobody's looking at the back end of our routines and saying, you know, where are their pain points? How do we make this easy? Um, You know, I've talked to women who tell me that they're unable to wash their hair more than once a month because they've got two kids with natural hair. So one week is dedicated to one kid. One week is dedicated to the other kid. You might get your hair done the next week, but you might not. And so on average, you're looking at three or four weeks where you're unable to just perform basic hygiene. That is untenable. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just about, you know, that discrete piece. It's about the wellness piece, right? Like we as black women have so many insecurities and hangups and issues around our hair, right? Mm -hmm. And I believe that as the market starts to see our value and starts to cater to our hair as it is, right? When Mm -hmm. all of the products on the market are geared towards you straightening your hair and literally chemically kind of changing the, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To something that is completely like other than what you're capable of growing out of your head. It does something to you. It tells you that what you have isn't good enough. And so, um, you know, we are, you know, not just focused on providing manufactured solutions to the problems that black women have, but we're also, you know, ultimately I see this company as being like a Procter and Gamble for the needs of black women because nobody else is serving them. Um, and, and that shouldn't be a surprise, right? Because when we look at all of the major manufacturers, the L'Oreal's, the Procter & Gamble's, the Unilever's, there are no black women in leadership in R&D there. So they can't innovate for us. They can't, you know, know what the back end of our lives look like. They can't identify the problems and so they can't make the solutions. So um, we're really dedicated to um, figuring out where black women's pain points are, the ones that have become so deep seated that we don't even acknowledge. We don't even acknowledge them. So what would you say as of right now are those pain points? Mm -hmm. With respect to hair, um, a lot of it is time. That's Mm -hmm. a big issue. A lot of it is is um, kind of uh, representation, right? So uh, this is changing by the month and by the year, but right now the vast majority of black kind of actresses and people who are in positions of kind of power and influence, we see them with straight hair. Mm. Um, And at the most, we believe that with more representation, um, you know, it becomes a little bit more mainstream and a little bit easier. So- I, I guess for me, because as you can see, my hair straight got weaved up. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, yeah. personally, right? Because I do a lot of traveling. Yeah. I'm on stages a lot. Yeah. And television, radio, like whatever that platform looks like where I am in front of people. Yes. My natural hair, even, and I am natural. Mm-hmm. Girl, I don't have time 
to your first pain point Amen. to manage it mm-hmm. to the point where I feel like I can walk out in public mm-hmm. and look like something that my mama would yes. be okay with. Yes. And it's not even about the rest of society it's and what true. their judgments are. But I know what my mama said. You're not walking out this house with your hair <laughs> looking like a nap fool. Like, you know what I mean? That's the reality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's okay. Well, what product where I'm not staying up, two hours doing a two strand twist right, at night right. or trying to do a twist out or yeah, yeah. braiding it. What How is it that? where yeah. you manage it and you, you personally feel comfortable yeah. because a lot of times I think society thinks that it's what we think other people are going to deem as acceptable yeah. or deem as appropriate. Mm-hmm. Whereas honestly, I think it's more internal. Internal. You're right. And what, our parents yes. and our grandparents have fed into us to say, it's true. You're what you're not going to do is embarrass me when you it's walk true. out of this house or, you know, so how do you overcome that where you're more secure yeah. and rocking the natural state? Yeah. Because I'm telling you, I'm not walking out the house after I <laughs> wash my hair. Like, it's yeah. just not going to happen. I hear you. I hear you. And that's one of the things that we're trying to kind of accommodate here, right? So, with Mintel, one of the kind of industry research firms, says that something like 80% of women, of black women, um, are wearing some form of natural hair, right? Not necessarily like wearing a washingo, but mm-hmm. they might be wearing a natural hair under a wig or under a weave, right? And we hear the same things, right? I'd love to rock my natural hair, but I can't because I don't have the time, right? So, so that's kind of where um, our hardware comes mm-hmm. in. Yeah. So let me kind of give you a sense of, you mentioned that you travel, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's another big pain point that we're trying to solve. Um, as I think you might have known, I've done a lot of traveling, lived all over the world, and it's just really difficult when you're not in D.C. or in Baltimore to find products that are actually for black women. So, or somebody who can do your hair. And that's true. That's absolutely right. So we came up with a product. Um, you know, we are on the radio, so we'll have to kind of do a good description. Um, but our feature product looks kind of like a flat iron. But instead of having those damaging hot plates that damage and straight uh, straighten natural hair, we've replaced those with cartridges. Those cartridges come pre-filled with a liquid product of your choice. You kind of snap them into the tool. The tool very gently warms those liquid products to kind of you know, get them to the right temperature to increase saturation. Um, and then you run it through your hair kind of like you would a uh, flat iron. But instead of getting straight hair, you're getting kind of fully hydrated, moisturized, natural hair. Does it still straighten your hair? No, no. This is for natural styling. So the idea is to get that kind of natural, curly, coily, kinky style faster, right? And whatever mm. you're doing, if you want to wear your wig or your weave over top, Cool. We're just making that prep time a lot faster. If you want to wear your wash and go, cool. We're making that prep time a lot faster. So the idea also is to make it a lot easier to travel. I mean, as did you bring me some of these products so I can do <laughs> reviews? Or, like Camille, you know better. You Your will PR be one specialist. of the first people. So we're launching actually Friday. Okay. And so we've got our prototypes up in Baltimore for last minute engineering refinements, but we'll make sure that you get a copy okay. as soon as we can. So um, travel is another huge pain point, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that I always, it just happened literally over the weekend. I was flying to Chicago. I had a full size of shea butter and um, I was pissed because I had just, you know, bought it. It was brand new and they made me throw it away. Right. So a lot of times, um, you know, we go through TSA, our tools get confiscated. Once we get to our destination, we can't find the products that we need because you're Mm -hmm. in San Fran. There isn't a big, you know, people of color population. Um, So what we're doing is we're making it easier to travel with all of the things you need to style your hair. Right. So instead of having to pack your comb and your brush and your full sizes, you can just kind of throw our tool into the bag, a couple of cartridges um, and just kind of make the whole process of traveling really easy. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to try this all out. Yes, yes. Now, have you had an opportunity to test out the product? Yeah. So what has, I mean, because I feel like our listeners are probably going to be like, yo, I don't even understand what's the purpose of this and mm-hmm. how it's going to make the process faster. Mm-hmm. Is it drying my hair faster? Is yeah. it, you yeah. know, what does it actually do? I yeah. understand the cartridges. Right. I understand the liquid fluid. Right. But what can I expect? Yeah. So if you think of your wash day, right, you've got, um, 
your combs, your brushes, your gels, your curl creams, and you're kind of taking each slice of hair and you're doing like four things to it. You're combing it, you're putting in your oil, you're raking through your curl creams and trying to get that saturation. You're holding the the, the fine tooth comb while you're pulling the... uh flat iron. Yeah, right. You're doing all these things at the same time. So um, basically what we're doing is streamlining that process, right? So rather than you having to go through four or five processes that take a long time, um, we're kind of truncating the amount of time it takes to process each uh, kind of slice of hair, thereby kind of cutting down the amount of time it takes to process your entire hair. So for my, for me, for example, it takes me about an hour and a half after I've gone through the process of st- of washing and conditioning. It takes me about an hour and a half to like saturate my hair with product. Um, but when I use our tool, we get it down to about fifty percent of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, quite frankly, for me, that you know, extra what half hour, 30, mm-hmm, 40 minutes, mm-hmm. that's really invaluable for me because I'm running to you know I'm running my company and I'm in leadership at a nonprofit. I don't have a whole lot of extra time to spend on my hair, um, and it just frees me up to do things like, for example, I for. there were like five months out of this year while our products were in development where I wasn't working out because I didn't have time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can work out a little bit easier now because, you know, my prep time for my hair is a half hour easier. Right. And not just that it's all about, it's also about making the user experience better. I mean, Every black woman with natural hair kind of knows the feeling of going into wash day and just being really kind of anxious about the whole process and not really wanting to do it, right? And so um, we want to make that process a little bit easier. It's kind of like the difference between a regular coffee pot versus a Keurig machine, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, They both do the same thing, um, but when you use a Keurig, there are fewer steps. It's really kind of streamlined. It's really simple. We're doing the same thing here. We're making it easier for you to just kind of you know run your tool through your hair get that full saturation point and be able to walk out the door um it also cuts down drying time by just a little bit so the entire process ends up taking a little bit less time um you know we're one of the things that we want to be very clear about is that we're not trying to change anyone's texture we're not trying to change 4c hair into 3a hair right Mm -hmm. that's not the goal um we want people to be able to embrace their natural textures we just make it faster and easier to to do so now do you also come up with the products mm-hmm. to you know insert into the the, yeah. the product line yeah so that's a really good question we have one line that we're developing in-house but we're also in partnerships you know we can't really say with whom yet but mm-hmm. we're also talking about or talking to other liquid product lines and the goal is eventually to have it so that people can go onto our website pick the brand of their choice pick the products of their choice from each of those brands and be able to infuse it into the exactly Mm -hmm. And you can just, we can send it straight to you. And again, it cuts down that extra step of having to think about, you know, do I need to go to CVS this week and pick up my, my, my products? It's sent to your door. And then look, we know that our community is very DIY. People like to make their own flaxseed gel or their own shea Mm -hmm, butter, mm -hmm. right? So we have kind of refillable options where you can use your own product or um, you can use our subscription model and just have everything sent to your door. Now, um, One of the things that I've noticed uh, as being a pain point for a lot of people, not necessarily as it relates to the hair care, but as it relates to um, not trademarking, because this isn't trademarking, but the, um, what is it called? Patents. Yes. Copyrights. Patents Mm -hmm. and copyrights. Have you gone through that process? Yes. It's grueling. And so my question is, what would be three tips that you can provide our audience if they have a product or new technology that they're trying to get through the patent office Mm -hmm. to help them kind of get through it? with as least pain as possible. Yeah, so there are a few things. I'd say the first thing is to really do your homework um, and find a you know patent agent or a patent lawyer that makes sense. Um, I'm a lawyer, and so I probably shouldn't say this, but lawyers, depending on your strategy, aren't always the best to go with. Um, for my product in particular, it's, it's a tech-enabled product, right? So I need an engineer um, that really understands product development mm-hmm. and kind of knows how to connect the business business dots. Um, and you're not going to find, it's going to be very difficult to find an engineer who's also a lawyer, mm-hmm. right? 
So um, working with a patent agent with an engineering background has been really helpful for me. And I think, you know, with other people, find people who have, you know, patent agents who have the on-point experience that you need. Um, That's the first thing. Have, you know, a patent agent or lawyer, but probably an agent that, you know, really understands your specific vertical um, and how to connect the dots in that vertical. Um, Another tip would be uh, not to kind of look at price, right? You you can, you know, spend 50K on getting a, a patent, but there are lots of really quality practitioners at a fraction of that cost. Um, I would also say, you know, to do a lot of the work on your own. Um, I'm not advising people to submit their own patent applications. Don't do that. Mm. Um, but I do think it's really valuable for people to go through the process of drafting their own or attempting to draft their own patent, to do their own patent search. That gives you um, a really good idea of what uh, is out there in your ecosystem, um, what the prior art looks like, uh, and basically how to construct this patent so that mm-hmm. you're not completely reliant on this other professional who holds all the keys while you're just kind of, you know, guessing and relying on them. Um, I would also suggest that with patents, you know, depending on the timing, you really got to think about the timing, right? So with us, we sped up our uh, patent application and got a track one application. And so we should have a disposition within the next four months, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it took us a total of maybe a year. It can take other people up to 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you really have to think about what timing makes sense for you. Because of our investment schedule, it made sense for us to have that early uh, disposition, but it may make sense for someone else to you know, maybe save that money and be able to say that they're patent pending for an extra two or three years and and. and and save some capital, some capital on the front end. So, um, you know, those are some of the lessons that I learned. But I think of those three, the most important one is to do the work yourself. Obviously, hire someone to actually kind of survey the absolutely, um, but do the work so that you aren't so you understand how this piece uh, kind of intersects with the rest of your business. Okay, no, that's good. That's good. Now, what is the price point for your product? Yeah, so right now we're selling at one twenty five. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're early stage and we get that this is new technology and we want, you know, people to really kind of understand that we are kind of doing our best to work with their price points. Um, but new technology is really expensive. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're starting to get some early traction. We've got 5000 people signed up for Yay! our early. Yeah. For our early bird list or whatever you want to call it. So um, we're probably not going to be able to sustain that price point forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, this technology is really expensive to develop um, and it's even more expensive to manufacture. So we're doing our best to kind of work with, you know, the people who've, who've, who've supported us early stage, but ultimately our price point is going to be closer to 200. Okay. So it is launching soon. And then where will people be able to find the product? Yeah, so you can find us at www.themostcurls.com. The company is called The Most. Um, but our handles, including our website, IG, Twitter, are all The Most Curls, C-U-R-L-S. Last question. This name, like just because I'm a branding type person. Sure. What made you come up with <laughs> What made you come up with the name the most? Yeah, it was a couple of things. So I'm obsessed with skincare um, and skincare is all about quality, right? And so I took a lot of my branding cues from some of my favorite skincare brands. And mm-hmm. one of my favorites, I'm not sure if you're familiar, is The Ordinary. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed was early on, The Ordinary, people had no idea what it was and they just went to the website because they were curious about the name. It was kind of off brand and they were just kind of interested to figure out what it was. And I was kind of, you know, intrigued by that. Um Also, as I mentioned, back in the day, I did a lot, right? I was working two jobs, double majoring, doing all the the things. Yeah, all the kids (laughs) would make fun of me. You did the most. (laughs) Yeah, all the kids would make fun of me and you're doing the most. And I just kind of, I don't know, I ran with it. Okay. All right. Cool, cool, cool. No, because I'm all about the branding and I'm like, that's right. I'm reading like the. Uh, different materials and I'm like the most what this doesn't make any sense like what is happening right now I gotta ask this right right right. and that's the idea right to make sure that people ask and come to us and try to figure it out I love it all right well thank you so much for being with us Don and you're gonna stay with us through the rest of the show correct okay so guys stay with us as well when we come back you'll be introduced to the woman behind black America carrots 
Stay with us. What I say, you already know, but you don't believe. You won't accept, you don't conceive. When you're inside your car, you feel safest of all. Are you safe? Are you? Two tons of sheet metal in your hands. Two tons don't run on autopilot. You have a mission. It's no collision. Hold the phone. Don't text. You're angling to be next. Oh, you've done it before. What's the harm? Just this once, there's no alarm. Got your hands on the wheel? No big deal. Brothers and sisters, you won't see it coming. You're off the road. Your life explodes. It's not worth it. Don't do it. You only think there's nothing to it. Put it down. Hang up. Pay attention to highway action. Behind the wheel, there is no such thing as a small distraction. Join the conversation at decidetodrive.org. A public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, who would rather help keep your bones strong than put them back together. Welcome back to the Women Behind the Business Talk Show. I'm your host, Angel Livis. And we just wrapped up a conversation with Dawn Myers about her hair products and tools for women with natural hair. Now we're switching gears to introduce you to Kimberly Holmes, the founder and CEO of Black America Cares, a 501c3 that assists families and individuals in underserved communities in crisis situations achieve stability and long-term self-sufficiency. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So excited to have you here. And I just totally randomly met Kimberly yesterday. Somebody put her on the phone with me and was like, yo, she just made her pub- her company public. Mm-hmm. So you should totally mm-hmm. talk to her and figure out what she's doing and get to know um, how you could potentially help. So I am here as a servant to be of service. And I would love to hear what it is that you are doing. Well, thank you. Um, again, the name of the organization is called Black America Cares. And as you mentioned, what we do is we assist families that are in financial crisis situations. They may be running behind or their rent, or they may need some assistance paying a utility bill, or sometimes even money just for the week to get gas and things like that. We find out exactly what their need is, and we assist them because sometimes an extra $300,000, $500,000 can make the difference between whether or not you keep your home or whether or not you're able to get to work or keep your utilities connected. So that's the beginning aspect of what we do. I have a bigger, broader plan, which involves real estate. Okay. And what I want to do right now, as far as I know, there are really no programs out here that help people transition from being in low income housing into home ownership. It tends to be more of a almost generational thing where you're in Section 8, your mom's in Section 8, the daughter's in Section 8, and it's a generational Mm -hmm. cycle. Mm -hmm. The other ultimate goal of Black America Cares is to help them transition from being in low-income housing, like I said, into home ownership. So we're going to purchase buildings as well as properties and um, teach them about financial literacy, basic life skills, and what it means to be a homeowner and transition into that ultimately. Now, I want to back up to like the very foundation of what back is Black America Cares, right? Mm -hmm. For everything that you're doing, one, I appreciate it and I want to applaud you and commend you for stepping out and being that solution for people in that predicament. But I also have to be honest that most people don't find a solution to problems that they have not been in a position where they've needed a solution. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of warranted, warranted them to realize that there was a void in the marketplace. So was there ever a situation where you felt like, how am I going to get help or a family member needed help, but there was really no solution to help them? Like, how did this all come about? That's exactly what happened. I was in a situation where I was working. I've never been a person that struggled with drug addiction or alcoholism or anything like that. Just through, I guess, a series of choices. I was a single mom, worked for the government, and just struggled making ends meet. And so there was a time where I needed help 
with paying some utility bills. And because I worked, I didn't qualify. Everybody told me I made too much money. So it was really hard um, trying to figure out what to do, where to go, who to ask for help when you don't fit into the, the basic criteria of people who are struggling with drug addiction or who don't work and all the other um, things that people generally who need help qualify for. Mm -hmm. So because I couldn't find the help that I needed, I figured I know I'm not alone. No, as a matter of fact, I know that I'm not alone because I had other girlfriends. Once we started talking and, you know, talking about different situations like that, same thing. And so because of that, I said, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead. Once I was able to dig myself out of that situation, I'm going to go ahead and try to provide a bridge to help people be able to have some way to go when they're struggling. Now, how did you dig yourself out of that situation? Hard work. (laughs) Hard work. I got a part-time job. And that's the other part, too. We not only offer assistance, but we ask you to come in and let's sit down and let's figure out exactly what this problem is and see if we can solve it. Because 30 days from now, you could be right back in the same situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the goal is to also help you find a solution to why is it you're not able to pay these bills or whatever. And I have to admit, there were some things, some choices that I was making that I needed to change. I like clothes. I like, you know, nice things. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sometimes you have to scale back. You know, um, I had to move from a two bedroom into a one bedroom. So there are things like that that you have to really be serious about and look at. And you may not want to do it at the time. But if it's a matter of surviving, mm-hmm. then you just have to do what you don't always want to do, especially when you have kids. It's not about you. It's about making sure that they are comfortable and they have everything they need. Absolutely. So what is the criteria? Because I, I don't imagine that I could just contact you all and say, hey, look, I'm a month behind on my utilities bills and I need money today. What's the criteria? What is that process like? So when you go to our website, um, there is a link there and you fill out the form and we ask you to provide proof that you're in this situation, whether it be a um, eviction notice or a uh, disconnection notice and things like that. And we typically look at families with children first. So we ask, you know, who's in your household and things like that. Ultimately, of course, we want to be able to help everybody. But as you can imagine, there's often more need than there is money. Mm -hmm. But I believe that'll change soon. Um, But that's basically it. I mean, I when you're in that situation, you're already feeling devastated, hopeless and helpless. That's how I felt, too. And I didn't want to go through a whole lot of red tape. My lights get ready to get cut off. Mm-hmm. Can you help me? Yes or no? And so that's the same approach, too. I don't want to take people through a whole lot of changes. But at the same time, I'm not going to allow a situation where we're being taken advantage of either. Mm-hmm. So you you definitely have to show proof that you really do need the assistance that you're requesting. Now, one of the things that I thought was really cute in your um, profile when you guys submitted was that um, you said a lot of non-African Americans asked you, well, do we qualify? You know, we know this is called Black America Caras, but, you know, what about the Hispanics or the whites or whatever other demographic? And your response is, sure, you you can go through the process, but our natural and our commitment is the Black community. And we want to make sure that this process is for the Black people. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, by law, you really can't discriminate. Mm-hmm. You know, however, I did a lot of studying and a lot of research when I was putting this together. And I saw that there are organizations within the Jewish community that you have to be Jewish, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Mm -hmm. The difference is, though, with them, they're privately funded. So if I wanted to just say this can only be for black people, then 
I couldn't be a 501c3. You know, I couldn't get the government assistance. I couldn't get the um, probably help from different corporations and things like that. Mm -hmm. If I were to be honest, do I want to just help black people? Yes, honestly, Mm -hmm. because we need it the most. But again, by law, I have to be able to accept anybody that comes and and help them. Um, But interestingly, as far as I can tell, there really hasn't been any requests from non-black people. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody that so far that we've assisted has been from the African-American community. And if non-African-Americans want to help or whatever, they can. Mm-hmm. But just know who this is for. Right. Now, when you uh, decided to go public, why did you make that decision? Well, help As me a understand exactly because, what you mean by go pl- public. So going public means essentially that, um, you know, it's a public company. Like you were just saying, it's not privately funded. It's a public entity where, you know, so if it was a for profit, I believe, don't quote me, that like going being a public company means that you could essentially have like a um, NASDAQ and you can trade um, in the stock market type right. thing. That's what I thought. Yeah. I'm not, I have not done that. <laughs> okay. So when, when you said that, I was like, okay, maybe there's some type of miscommunication in there. Okay. Um, I would love to, you know, <laughs> I would love to have people be able to invest in what we do and to be able to get some type of profit from it. But, um, no, we're not public in that, that aspect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. So you're also an author mm-hmm. um, of two books, which I feel like have a very spiritual undertone to them. Mm-hmm. Um, one is uh, Holy Hustler to Holiness. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe God is trying to tell you something. Correct. Correct. That's correct. No, it's from memory. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right. So, tell me a little bit about how your spirituality influences the work that you do. Um, I'm a pastor's daughter. Okay, Okay, Pastor Child. Okay, I'm a PK. So (laughs) that foundation is there. But like a lot of PKs, you stray. You go out there. You learn some things the hard way which I did. And most of that story is in the Hustlers to Holiness story. Um, the title is pretty much what it's about. You turned into a hustler. I dated hustlers. Oh, okay. Big time hustlers. And um, by God's grace, never got into any trouble. Like some of my friends that were out there ended up going to prison. I even had a friend that got killed being mm-hmm. with somebody that, you know, they were beefing with somebody else and just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, there were all kinds of situations that I was able to, again, by God's grace, came out with a scratch. No, mm-hmm. no blemish, no nothing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm grateful for that. Um, and because of that, the reason why I wrote the book is because I wanted other young women to really understand what can happen, how they can get caught up. You know, it looks, it is glamorous. I'm not going to say it looks glamorous. It is glamorous. You go to the fights and you have all the fancy clothes and the jewelry and the fine dining and your bills are paid and all of that kind of good stuff. And you're not realizing really the danger that you're in. Hmm. Again, being with the wrong person, somebody could be beefing with them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And because they're upset with them and you with them, they put a hit on him and you're in it too. But to get back to the purpose of the book, I really wanted to send a message to young ladies that and, and men too, that the whole drug game, the whole drug scene is just destruction. Not only from what the person selling the drugs can um, get caught up in, but also you're destroying the community. Mm. You know, Um, I had an epiphany personally that made me decide to get out of that. If you don't mind me sharing. Oh, absolutely. Um, I never sold drugs, but I had friends who did. And I was with a friend who was selling at the time. And this young lady walked up to her who was clearly strung out on crack. And she had a bag of toys. 
and she wanted to exchange this bag of toys for drugs. And she did. She made the exchange, and it was only like $10 worth of crack. But I'm looking at her, and so I was like, wait a minute, you know, whose toys are those that you're selling? And she said, oh, they're my son's. And I said, well, how old is your son? Well, he's five. And at the time, my daughter was five. Hmm. And I thought about how she would feel if she woke up and saw all of her toys gone. And so I asked the young lady, I said, well, what are you going to tell your son when he asks you about where his toys are? And she just kind of flipped me off. And he'd be all right. He can play with his friend's toys. I got to go. And from that moment, I was like, oh, my God, look at what we're doing. This young lady is somebody's mother, somebody's daughter. You're impacting this boy. I mean, it's affecting the whole family. Mm -hmm. And I went home and all of the stuff that I wanted, that I had gotten, clothes, TVs, furniture, I, I didn't even want it anymore. Because I realized how, although I wasn't selling drugs, I was still benefiting off of the misery of other people. Mm-hmm. And so all of that story is in the book, and um, along with other stuff, to really help people understand the full impact of what they're doing when they're out there. You know, we just see it, as I did too, as, well, if they don't get it from me, they, they don't get, get it from somebody else. else. Mm-hmm. So why not? But no, we we have to do better within our community and we have to care more for each other. So awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And and I think it's it's commendable still how you've made that that 180 turn from, you know, being in the position where you were out on the streets and kind of impacting the community negatively, but now you're all in and just being a beacon of hope and support to really impact the community in a very positive way. So I still commend you. Thank you. Um, and applaud you for being willing to be open and authentic and sharing your story. So thank you. Thank you. All right. So ladies, we have come to the point in the show where we do our moments from the Valley. Um, but before we do, we are going to play a little Alicia Keys maybe. Um, and so while we play that, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to decide what your moment from the Valley is that you would like to share. And so audience, enjoy Alicia Keys. Stay with us. Wonder 
All right, welcome back. So as everybody knows, this is my favorite part of the show. Um, This is where I ask you to share a moment in your life that you did not know how you were going to overcome a particular situation. I would like you to share what that situation was, how you overcame it, and what was waiting for you on the other side. And so Dawn, we're going to start with you. Yeah, I mean, there are quite a few moments that I can point to over the past 20, 25 years. Um, But um, I think the one that sticks out in my mind the most is um, I was 17 years old and I had just graduated from high school. I was about to go to college and I already didn't know how I was going to afford college. And my caretaker um, had a, a little bit of a, a breakdown and um, the situation became physically abusive and I had to leave. Um, and it was a very dramatic departure. Um, I ended up kind of, you know, uh, in my underwear um, on the street with nothing. Um, and I had to figure it out, right? I had to figure out how I was going to get to college. I had to figure out, you know, where I was going to live. I just, there were just all these things that 17 year olds don't usually deal with. Um, and I figured it out, you know, I emancipated myself at, uh, 17 years old. I, you know, went through several legal channels to get the protections that I needed. Um, you know, I was on the phone with, you know, higher ups, uh, in the police department, like calling audibles, you know, and that showed me at 17 years old that, you know, I'm petite, I'm slight, I'm young, I'm a girl, but I'm powerful and I can make things happen for myself. Um, And that's really, I think, been a landmark moment throughout the rest of my life and career. Um, I know uh, that my voice is powerful and that I'm smart and I can figure it out. Um, And it it forced me, you know, there were some hard years after that. As I mentioned, you know, during our talk, we, I had to work a couple of jobs while I was in school and it was a lot on me, but I learned work ethic and I learned um, just how to be deeply committed to my goals and uh you know in the in the long run um it's just it's really paid off for me now when you said your legal guardian mm-hmm. i don't understand it was my mom oh yeah yeah she went through some things um she's gonna kill me if she hears this but <laughs> but yeah we went through some things and as i mentioned you know my mom was yeah she was a police officer and um, it was it was just a very dramatic time because, you know, I recognized that in that moment I was not safe and mm. I had to take certain precautions to get safe. Um, and it was a very dramatic time for my family. It was a very difficult time for myself. Um, it was a very difficult time for our relationship. Um, it was a very difficult time financially, but we got through it. And since then, I mean, I've definitely had valleys since then, but I always kind of go back to that time. If I could get through that at 17, I can get through that. I can get through whatever I'm going through now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. And you guys are good now, though. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. All right, Kimberly. Okay, well, for me, I was homeless, hmm. but not in the street homeless because I worked, right? And again, transitioning. The the person that I was involved with, the, the drug dealer, went to jail. So I'm living in this place that I really can't afford by myself. And instead of being honest with myself, I tried to stick it out and ultimately had to leave and go to a hotel. So I'm at this hotel. I'm down to my last. It's like, I don't know, $500 a week. I'm down to my last $500. Don't know where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it. Um, and all I knew to do was just pray. And, I, you know, I just had my son at the time. My daughter had made some other arrangements. And I had to figure out where I was going to go, what I was going to do. Ultimately, um, God put someone in my heart that I could call a friend and, you know, ask them, could I just come stay there? And, and, and my biggest, one of my biggest things, too, was pride. I did not like asking people for help. Um, But I had to break down and ask, and I did. And just slowly but surely, I got myself back together. Again, I I got another job, but I pretty much lost everything. I had a Mercedes Benz. The Benz got repossessed. Um, Just lost everything. 
and had to be stripped again because I was so prideful. If I could be honest, really kind of arrogant, too. And just had to get rid of all of that, all of that attitude and um, just deal with the reality of where I was and who I was. But again, slowly but surely, my friend, I stayed with her for maybe seven months, I think. About seven months. Slept in her. She had an extra room. No furniture, because it was really for her son, who was like three or whatever. So he was able to just sleep in a room with her. Mm -hmm. And my son at the time was, uh, I think, 12 or 13. And we slept in there on the floor in that room. And um, slowly but surely had to build myself back up to where I could live on my own and pay my own bills and, and, and not be so suchy much. You know, live in an apartment that I really want to live in, but I'm on the other side of that now. And I, I told you, coming in, I just bought a new house. Oh, you know, so and we are so happy and so excited. It's beautiful. It's an amazing part of town, and I really want any and everybody to know, no matter where you are, how difficult it is. You can come out. You can get out of that thing and you can, I'm a witness without selling drugs, without stripping, without doing anything that a lot of people resort to just to try to have the things that they think they want. You can have it, but you can have it and still sleep at night. Mm, I love that. mm -hmm. So I have a question and I don't normally ask questions after moments from the Valley because I feel like they are very powerful and transitional um, conversations and testimonies. But I feel compelled to ask both of you because I feel like your stories are similar in the sense that you were both stripped. Yeah, mm-hmm. literally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How important do you think it was for you to go through what you went through and to be completely stripped for you to make it out and appreciate and understand exactly what your power is? It's impacted my relationships, right? I, Because of that situation, I really had to kind of think a little bit more maturely about relationships and what other people are going through than I think your average 17-year-old has to. Um, and that's really informed my relationships going forward. And so, I mean, I can't think of a part of my life that isn't touched by that moment. Mm. Um, and it was really kind of pivotal for me. And when I think of my life's timeline in my head, right, it's very flat. And then there's that moment and there's this kind of really sharp spike upwards. Um, and and um, yeah, you know, uh, in that moment, just like you said, you know, you feel stripped, you feel like you're completely powerless but the power that I gave myself that I gave my that voice that I gave myself in that moment that's carried me through the rest of my life awesome for me um the humility that was born from that I think is the most powerful thing that came from it awesome Well, thank you, ladies, so much for sharing your journey and your testimony. Um, If you would like to share your social media information so people can follow you, that would be great. Sure. So you can uh, get in touch with me personally at Dawn Does The Most on Instagram or Twitter. Um, My website is www.dawndoesthemost. And you can contact the company at uh, The Most Curls on Facebook and Twitter. And the web is www.themostcurls.com. Awesome. And um, I am at blackamericacares.org and uh, at blackamericacares on Instagram and at blackpeoplecare on Twitter and at blackamericacares on Facebook. Everything is (laughs) blackamericacares. Awesome. I love that marketing. (laughs) Next time you can just say you can find us everywhere on all your social media platforms at blackamericacares. That's it. There you go. All right. Thank you, ladies, so much for sharing your time and your stories with us. I've truly appreciated it, and I hope that our audience has too. Now for our audience, please be sure to check out past broadcasts on our website, wbbtalk.com. And now you can start registering for the Woman Behind the Business Retreat, 
titled Vision 2020, using scriptures to propel you to new dimensions. It's all happening on the beautiful island of Nassau, Bahamas, February 20th through 24th, 2020, at the Bahama Resort and Convention Center. To register, visit wbbtalk.com backslash registration. And of course, follow us on social media at wbbtalk. A special thank you to our show producer, Kyle Murdoch, and our program director, Max Myrick. Until next time, stay blessed.